So what we know is climate change is real and it's affecting the Army today. This isn't some idea out in the stratosphere somewhere decades from now we're going to run into problems. Uh, it's impacting the Army's mission today, right now. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. Climate change is creating a host of hazards across the country and around the world, including extreme weather and drought. These hazards raise concerns about energy demand and production, as well as broader concerns for human health, safety, and national security. In 2021, President Joe Biden issued an executive order directing federal agencies to develop plans for increasing resilience to the impacts of climate change. In response, 23 major federal agencies published climate plans, including the U.S. Army. These agencies and state governments exercise considerable discretion in identifying anticipated risks and deciding where to invest and how best to mitigate potential harm to people and to assets. In this week's conversation, my colleague Morgan Higman talks with Paul Farnham and Elizabeth Riley on climate preparedness strategies of the U.S. Army and of state and local governments. Paul is Principal Deputy Secretary of the Army for Installations, Energy, and Environment. Allison is an Assistant Professor in the School of Engineering at the University of Maryland. I'll turn it over to Morgan now for this conversation. Well, Paul and Allison, thank you so much for joining us today. We have published a few reports on resilience recently, and we've been looking at initiatives at both the state and federal levels. Over the course of the summer, we saw symptoms of the changing climate, including extreme heat and drought, driving concerns about energy production and demand, and broader concerns for human health and safety. We think now there's a lot of good reason to be talking about emissions reduction, of course. It's also increasingly important to focus on resilience and adaptation. Paul, in February of this year, the Army published its climate strategy, which outlines three end goals, a 50% reduction in Army GHG emissions by 2030, net zero emissions by 2050, and proactive consideration of the security implications of climate change in strategy, planning, acquisition, supply chain, and programming. I want to talk about the substance of this strategy, but let's begin with the bigger picture. Could you tell us how this strategy was developed and what it says about how the Army is thinking about climate change and national defense? And in particular, what I'm thinking about here is, was this strategy developed in anticipation that climate change could affect U.S. defense capabilities? Or was it sort of developed in anticipation of climate change affecting the geostrategic landscape or both or something else? Thank you. Both and something else. So what we know is climate change is real and it's affecting the Army today. This isn't some idea out in the stratosphere somewhere decades from now we're going to run into problems. Uh, it's impacting the Army's mission today, right now. Uh, it's impacting how we operate, where we operate, how we train, uh, and how we have to respond to things. For example, the security of our installations. Uh, we've got a lot of bases down in the southeast. Every year, as the hurricanes get bigger and more frequent, our bases, they're getting battered uh, continuously. Fort Polk continuously gets battered. Ask the Air Force how Tyndall Air Force Base is going. So it affects our operations and our, our ability to operate, but it's also the safety of our soldiers and their families. Out West, thousands of National Guardsmen now spend their summers doing wildland firefighting 
rather than training for their operational army mission. It's affecting where we operate. In Alaska, we just christened the 11th Airborne uh, Division up there. We now have to have a more permanent presence in Alaska because of the melting uh, polar ice caps and everything that that's going to implicate us for. We end up doing a lot of disaster response uh, right here domestically in the United States after mm-hmm. these big hurricanes, after the fires. A lot of our active duty troops are now doing defense support to civil authorities, helping Americans in their biggest time of need, which is something we're very proud and happy to do. But again, that takes time from our training and more fighting mission. Um, So it's absolutely affecting the Army uh, right now. So we did this strategy for two reasons. One, to help the Army adapt to the climate change that's happening and how are we going to operate in this changing environment, Uh, but also to do our part. uh, This is a global problem. This is a national problem. Everyone needs to do their part to help mitigate the effects of climate change, reduce greenhouse gas emissions that's causing it. So this is the Army's way of contributing uh, to the solution. Well, thank you so much. Allison, Paul's just told us about sort of the real effects that we're feeling today. When we think about states and communities, there's not always an overarching strategy for climate preparedness like the Army has developed. Often we recognize the need for preparedness or resilience only after it's too late and we're in recovery. Why is this the case? And do you think we're learning from experiences of disaster? Yeah, great question. So I want to just take a step back and look at kind of the state of resilience in the United States and how has it changed over the past kind of 10, 20, 30 years? And we've seen that disaster losses have increased dramatically over time. The amount that we're spending on recovery has dramatically increased. So why is this the case? So, I mean, part of it, a huge driver is climate change. We were seeing more intense storms. When storm, when hurricanes do hit, they stay longer in certain places. Uh, they stall. They and So we have heavier rainfall higher heats. So the hazard has been changing. We are also seeing things like more development in really hazard prone areas. One of the fastest places of development is places with what we call a 10 year floodplain. So we expect a flood every 10 years on average. So we see there's a lot of development in these high hazard areas. So we're becoming more vulnerable combination of where we're developing and the changes in climate. So The golden period we usually think about of when to mitigate and really and think about the long term is usually within about six months after a hazard. That's the period of time that people it's on their forefront. Beyond that time, we it's really hard for get people to really think about how do I really prepare and think long term about about climate change and how these hazards will affect me in the future. Human behavior is is complicated. And so, you know, I have this analogy. It's kind of easy to think about winning the lottery, right? And like getting a lot of money. Like I can wrap my head around that and that would be great. But it's really, really catastrophic losses are really hard to wrap my head around. And so because it's so challenging to wrap our heads around it, at an individual level, it's harder to prepare for those type of catastrophic things that could happen to us. And what are we learning from these experiences? We are learning. I think there are some lessons that we are learning over time, and we can do some deep dives into that. I think a lot of the learning we're doing um, is especially an emergency response. We're getting much better at really kind of these tactical level things, like making sure we don't have generators in the basement, making sure we know where nursing homes are, and making sure that we don't have nursing homes in a floodplain. And if we do, make sure we prioritize the evacuation, right? 
I think we're still really struggling with this long-term planning. What is the strategic response that has to be done at a local level, state level, and federal level in order to enable people to really think long-term and provide either the resources or a coherent plan for how we can take action in the future? Because as of right now, it's really at the individual level and somewhat at more at the local level, especially at like a local government level, the prioritization is more more on schools, crime, not this long-term thing that could happen and also might not happen. So it's challenging. And I think there's an incredible amount of work to be done. Yeah, it sounds like it. Paul, you've done an incredible amount of work thinking about sort of the Army strategy, and it includes three lines of effort is what they're called, and they are related to Army installations and infrastructure, acquisition and logistics, and training. And so altogether, these things are to support your end goals uh, related to emissions reduction and also better preparedness for climate disasters. Progress in each of these areas is going to require a lot of careful thinking about anticipated climate risks and hazards, as Allison has just described, but also technologies and management decisions that can help mitigate some of those risks. When we think about the Army's primary mission of being able to respond to a crisis and conflict, how can we think about some of these technologies and management strategies sort of enhancing Army capabilities and Conversely, what liabilities and challenges are you up against? What is the consequence of an electric vehicle in a combat situation, perhaps? So the best part about the climate strategy is it actually enhances the core mission of the Army. Mm -hmm. The the core mission of the Army is to fight and win the nation's wars. Nothing, absolutely nothing in the strategy, and we purposely made sure that this was the case, nothing in the strategy detracts from accomplishing that mission. In fact, everything in the strategy actually enhances our capabilities to accomplish that mission. Uh, and we'll kind of break it up into the lines of efforts that you mentioned. Line of effort one is the installations. These days, installations play a greater role than in the past when it comes to war fighting. We are in a different world, a different environment. We've never had to fight a war in a contested homeland. The war always started on some overseas battlefield. And you know, the soldiers first taste the battles when they got to the front thousands of miles away. That's no longer the case. We've never fought a war with a contested homeland, but we'll never fight another war without a contested homeland. There's gonna be a cyber attack. There'll be other non-kinetic attacks. The grid might go down. Uh, Transportation systems will be uh, disrupted. We're gonna have problems just with the deployment of forces. So we need our installations to be able to operate because our installations, this is where our forces are. This is where we deploy to war from. Um, So we need to be able to get them trained, equipped, organized, and out the door to the overseas battlefield. But with these non-kinetic cyber attacks or even physical attacks in the homeland, that will create a bigger challenge. Our installation needs to be able to operate if the grid goes down. And I'm not talking about a power outage of a few hours. I'm talking about weeks or maybe even months from a cyber attack. So what you'll notice uh, uh, in this line of effort, we're talking about things like self-contained generation on the installation. Uh, with battery storage, with microgrids, that when the grid does go down, we can still power our mission critical systems so our bases can still operate. Everything in LOE1 basically makes our installations more modern and more resilient, more capable of fighting a war. Uh, LOE2, that's the operational energy side. That's the burning of the fuel for the tactical vehicles, for the warfighters. When it comes to that, the Navy and the Air Force, they're gonna outstrip us in the amount of fuel burn. They've got the big planes, they've got the big ships. So for real fuel reduction for, from a climate point of view, LOE2 is not gonna be as impactful as LOE1 will be or as what the Air Force and the Navy can do. But here's the thing, LOE2 is 
the direct impact on the soldiers, on the war fighters on the battlefront. So for that reason alone, it's the most near and dear to our hearts. And in my opinion, one of, it is the most important LOE. If we can reduce the fuel that our combat vehicles use, we can reduce the logistical supply lines. That means we can reduce the amount of soldiers that have to guard those lines. That means we have more soldiers available for the fight. In Iraq and Afghanistan, we took a thousand casualties defending our fuel lines. If we cut our fuel use in half, that's half of the, the fuel lines we have to protect. That's half the casualties we take. Um, and again, that's double the amount of forces that we're actually going to be able to use for our combat. If we can extend the range of our vehicles, that gives them greater capabilities. They burn less fuel. They can go farther. They have to come off the front lines to refuel uh, that less often. It also helps protect the soldiers. So our tanks, our armored personnel carriers, when they're out on the battlefield, a lot of the time they're just sitting idle and, and they're just waiting. But because the modern soldier is electrified, radios and other communications gear, radars, night vision goggles, you name it, they need electricity. So the engine has to run. If we can use hybrid, uh, hybrid vehicles, shut the engine down, but still be able to power our systems, now we've reduced the acoustic and the thermal signatures. And that's what missiles can hone in on. So we're, therefore we're protecting the lives of our soldiers. Um, so everything we're doing, it is increasing the capabilities. You know, I get the question all the time over the last six months, how, you know, there's a war going on with Russia. Why are you guys worried about climate change? Well, one, because as I said before, climate change is affecting what we can and cannot do and what we have to do. Uh, but more importantly, again, this climate strategy, it's increasing our abilities to actually take on these wars. And we've seen the logistical problems the Russians had uh, at the beginning of the war. Again, logistics is a real issue. Uh, we're fortunate we have wonderful logisticians, but if we can make their jobs easier, you know, cut the load in half to be able to do it, again, we're increasing the capabilities of the army and we're increasing the ability to actually win the wars and protect our soldiers. Just staying on that acquisition and logistics piece for a second, what does some of these new technologies mean for the army's strategy for acquiring some of these technologies? Are you concerned about solar panels being made in China, for instance, or, or battery supply for electric vehicles? Is that something that has been sort of well articulated in terms of acquisition and logistics strategy, or is that still forthcoming? Uh, no, that is absolutely in the conversation, and it's a real concern, you know, where the rare earth minerals come from and where a lot of the manufacturing happens. But this is a bigger issue than just the Army. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a national issue, uh, and I know the Biden administration and the leadership in the Pentagon have taken this on uh, to address these rare earth minerals and the manufacturing supply lines to bring more onshore so that we can domestically manufacture the equipment that we need. Very good. Allison, when we think about climate preparedness on the home front, there are a lot of challenges, but do you think that they're mostly science and engineering based and, and anticipating risks and hazards and developing solutions to kind of mitigate them? Or do you think they're more social in terms of fiscal limitations and popular support? Or is it a mix of them, all of them? Probably a mix. Yeah. And I'll start with engineering challenges. Mm -hmm. So full disclosure, I'm an engineer, love engineering, and would love to see our, us engineer our way out of this. Mm -hmm. But I often work with my students and try to convince them, and hopefully the audience as well, that that's really a 20th century approach. That we, in the 20th century, we really focused on engineering solutions. So like building levees and dams to protect cities and, and urban areas. And like we really, and that was really the, the approach back in the day. We know that that approach isn't ideal because so I'll give you we have this concept called the levy effect. So 
it's really well illustrated in Japan. So Japan, they have a really rich history of recording damage and losses over time and deaths as well. And so we look, if we can look at, for tsunamis, they put up seawalls over in some areas. In some areas, they didn't put up seawalls. We look over time, the higher the seawall, the more death and destruction that was experienced in Japan. The reason is that seawalls only protect up to some height. There's always some probability, some residual risk that still exists. There could still be overtoppling. So if you don't couple engineering protection with kind of planning, urban planning, making sure you don't have critical infrastructure behind levees, making sure you don't have development behind levees, there's always some likelihood or some residual risk that there's going to be that destruction. When you remove levees, there's that perception that it is high hazard area and you don't have as much development there. I'm not in any way saying we need to remove all the levees in the United States. That is certainly not the solution. But we do have to understand that behavioral response between these engineering solutions that actually induce us to make riskier decisions and, and you know, and, and the risk afterward. So, yeah, I think that there is work that we need to do on the engineering side, but we really have to understand how people interact with their environment and respond to this risk. So there's there's that. I also think on the social side, yes, and the political side, there's a lot of work that we need to do. There's arguably, you know, popular support for it. But when it gets down to it, there's not always a lot of popular support because some of these things are going to have require really tough decisions. Which roads do we protect over time? There's going to be roads in the United States that we're going to have to abandon. There are areas in the United States that will be abandoned over time because the sea level rise, we just will not be able to keep up with the inundation. But what areas do we protect? Probably we'll be protecting more urban cores than rural areas, but there are real social implications with with that. There are a lot of, uh, as you mentioned, fiscal limitations. The Biden administration has put in a a very large amount of money, one to two billion into the BRIC program that's building resilient infrastructure and communities, which is a great start. But it is pennies relative to what we need for protecting cities, making sure we have adaptation and kind of a transition to a, a future where people can live in a place safely without kind of this fear of of having really intense uh, hazards over time. I really appreciate that I, uh, description of the levees and that false sense of security and that need to couple the planning with the engineering, which makes me think we're actually a little ahead of ourselves in this conversation because we've talked about sort of the benefits of climate preparedness for the army and on you know on the home front maybe. But what about anticipating risks? How's the army thinking about where the hazards will be and which installations need the most hardening or which might need to be relocated? Is there a team that's doing that? Is there a tool the Army will use? So we are, we'll start that at the installation level. A lot of this is going to be a bigger conversation for DOD as a whole, but we're required, you know, all the installations are going to be required to do climate resilience planning. And it's, so every installation has a master plan and they relook at it every five years and update it as necessary. As these five-year plans come due, all of the installations need to start looking at the climate resiliency and what the risks and 
the threats are so that we can take all of that, feed it up and ha have this bigger picture. Um, Cause you're right, we need to figure this out, but it needs to start at the local level. I can't sit in Washington DC and know exactly what the threats of Western Texas are gonna be um, or upstate New York or pick your installation. So it's gonna be a bottom up approach. We are starting those conversations. We're starting that planning process now. Uh, we might be a little bit behind the curve, but we're gonna push to catch up uh, over the next few years. So we can take a hard look at that. You might be a little behind the curve, but I also think of the Army as having a sort of terrific research and development set of resources and a high degree of coordination and efficiency relative to maybe some of the other parts of our, our country. So what about you, Allison? Where do you see anticipating risks and climate modeling and planning mm -hmm. um, making progress or not? Yeah. So on the climate and hazard side, I think that the science is there. I think there's still obviously work to be done in on, on the science side, but hazard science is really strong. We know the return period of flooding in a lot of areas. We know projections under climate, climate change with heat. So the, on the hazard side, the threat side itself, I think that we understand that. But the human side, the vulnerability side, we don't really understand to some extent how the infrastructure will intersect with these hazards, where vulnerable people are and how they will be affected over time, what those recovery pathways and will look like. And so I think that that is where we really need to focus on and really try to bring down the risk in that area. And do you think that's a matter of putting tools in the hands of decision makers or frameworks to guide those decisions or you know, what is needed? Yeah, I, I think that's everything. So at the local level, and, I, and I've talked to a number of jurisdictions and, and, and local planners, and what I hear often is like they're really, really eager. A lot of places are to do work, but a lot of times they're not always sure what should they do? And so, yeah, tools would be helpful. And there are some wonderful tools coming out of NOAA now to help kind of make those decisions. Green infrastructure is becoming more of the discussion. But without having, you know, even at a state level, a long-term plan about where this the, at the state level where we're going to be protecting and making investments it's really i think hard at the local level to, to to make these decisions so like for example let's think about investments in in roadways in really rural areas there are a lot of state roads roads that are owned by states will states over time decide not to make investments in these roads if they stop to make investments in these roads that's going to have huge implications at local town is going to have big impact on them. And so if the town has to make long-term planning decisions without input of how, how the state's going to make investments in protecting their infrastructure, and there's not also input about how different utilities will be making protection, it, you're kind of making a lot of these decisions like with the best knowledge that you have, but without input from all of these other groups that you really do need to understand what their plans are too, to make sure that you're just not working, you know, in a silo. Sure. Paul, Allison is talking to us about sort of intersections of state and local planning. Um, the Army installations we've talked about, but the Army as an organization wields a large purse and it has a big geographic footprint in a lot of American communities. How will the climate strategy affect how the Army is engaging with uh, American industries, maybe with for new technologies or resources that you will need for your climate goals, but also local communities? 
That's an excellent point. So the installation and the local community surrounded it, surrounding it, they're one and the same. You can't separate it. Our soldiers live in those communities. Their spouses work there. Their kids go to school there. And conversely, in many places, the installation is the largest employer in the area. So thousands of civilians from the community will work on, on the base. Uh, so they literally are one and the same. So as we do any kind of thinking and planning, we have to look what's outside of the wire. We have to include the community as part of that. Uh, and we're starting to do that. All of our bases, for the most part, have really good relationships with the local communities. Um, and they work together on everything from, and they've got cooperative agreements, everything from um, fire protection to transportation systems, um, you name it, uh, schools. A lot of our bases have public schools on the installations themselves. So the school buses come on to pick up um, our soldiers' children. The last National Defense Authorization Act, uh, it actually required all installations to do their master planning, including state and local uh, government officials. Um, we are in the process of writing out the policy directive to direct that. Um, so as we do these five-year master plans, uh, the next time as each installation reopens it and relooks at it, they're now going to be required to absolutely, you know, if they, if they haven't already, uh, they're now required to incorporate the local officials, including the local utility, because we get our electricity from the utility just like everybody else. And when we're thinking about this resiliency, one of the things we're looking at is, you know, as we're putting generation on our installations to make sure that if the grid goes down, our mission critical systems are still powered for national security reasons. But what if once we've met the generation requirements for our mission critical systems and we've got excess power, why can't we work with the local utility so that a hard line is going from the installation back into the community so that that excess power after our mission critical systems are powered, we can feed that back into the community for the hospitals, for the fire stations, the police stations, whatever other critical needs the community needs. So whether it's resilience, disaster planning, everyday operations, we're absolutely linked hand in hand very closely with the community. Allison, environmental justice is a, a cornerstone of President Biden's climate agenda, and you've talked a little bit about vulnerable communities. I think all of us here are aware that addressing vulnerability is particularly important because many of the people who are most vulnerable are disadvantaged for a variety of reasons, historical and, and contemporary. At the same time, not everything can be made resilient. And I think that's part of the difficulty of, of some of the conversations around this topic. What does more equitable disaster and resilience policy look like? Is it hardening of homes and infrastructure or deployment of new technologies like solar and microgrids? Or is it retreat from disaster prone areas? And how can some of these hard decisions be made more equitably? Yeah, great question. It's, I think, so, so important. So I wanted to, yeah, let's take a step back and look at how environmental justice kind of intersects with, with disasters. So as you mentioned, disadvantaged groups are more likely to reside in vulnerable areas. A lot of that's a history. It goes back to the Civil War and even before of, of freed men and women being placed on areas of land that is highly vulnerable to flooding. We see that right now in Prince George's County. Um, and so, so there is that legacy to begin with. It also, infrastructure in communities of color tends to be more vulnerable and of lower quality also. So when you have a disaster, it's more likely to break. It's simple, like try to keep it like as simple as that, right? And so, and then you also have this other layer of having less of a political voice. And so the harder, less ability to advocate for the changes that are so needed in these areas. So 
all of those things intersect to make them to have higher risk. And so we have to accommodate and think about that when we're thinking about disaster policy. So like one area that I work closely with, we're starting a, a project on the eastern shore of, of Maryland, highly vulnerable to sea level rise is septic systems. So communities of color are more likely to reside in areas that flood. They also are far less likely to be connected to sewer lines. It goes back to the 1960s and 70s when sewer expansion was more common and when it was being done. Communities of color are far less likely to be on sewer lines than white communities due to perceptions over ability to pay. So you have this sea level rise and septic systems, and that's a recipe for disaster because you just you have this situation where you have septic tanks that are just going to, and we're already starting to see that. And so acknowledging that there are, there are reasons why you know communities of color are, are going to be more vulnerable. So we do need to really address that. The BRIC program does start to address that, building resilient infrastructure in communities. It does prioritize communities of color, more vulnerable communities, which is a great start. My concern with programs like that is there's this cost share. There's a 25% cost share at the local level. And so local these local communities that need this money most has to come up with a cost share. That's almost all federal disaster grant. The local governments have to come up with that cost share. That's really hard. There's another issue that I want to think about that I think about a lot with disaster policy and kind of making it more more equitable is what is a disaster and how do we define a disaster in the United States? The disaster is declared by the president. It's a presidentially declared disaster. A There are certain thresholds for what we consider to be a disaster. It's a monetary value and it's a per capita monetary value, which is saying that a disaster is based on property value. And so areas with higher property values and higher, more assets are going to be more likely to have a disaster simply because how we measure a disaster is based simply on damage. And so wealthier communities are more likely to receive disaster declarations. They're more likely to have cost share and be able to pay that cost share. So they're receiving more funds as a result of, of how our disaster policy and that paradigm works. So to shift it to be something more equitable, I think is going to be challenging, but I do think it's something that really needs to be explored. We really need to explore what is a disaster? <laughs> That's what I even ask my students a lot. Is like, and what is an equitable way to think about what is a disaster at a, at a local level? How do we think about cost share and what, how much a community should be spending on cost share and how much should there be this strict 25-75% balance or should it be more flexible? I think that there are ways we can, there are many ways to structure policy. I think there's been actually very little explored about different ways to structure policy and really evaluating to whom the benefits accrue and who the benefits don't accrue to and who, who it harms. Um, Paul, scaling back out, I expect that the Army coordination on climate preparedness with other U.S. military branches and with allies is an important part of your thinking. Um, what is the vision for aligning the climate priorities of the Army with some of our other allies? 
So first I'll take this opportunity just to proudly say that the Army was the first service out with uh, climate strategy, which we're very proud of. And that's really due to the leadership of Secretary Warmoth. She recognized the need, she saw the risks, uh, and she gave us the directions to do this. Uh, so leadership really does matter. And so kudos to Secretary Warmoth for both pushing us to do this and giving us the ability to do it. But having said that, uh, the Navy did come out with their climate strategy a couple months ago, which I was very happy to see. Uh, the Air Force, I'm told, is working on there, so we should be seeing that soon. And again, I might needle my service counterparts about that the Army was the first one out the gate on this. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is a bigger problem uh, than the Army. And we need to magnif uh, magnify our abilities and magnify our effects. And the way to do that is to join forces. You mentioned the purse that the Army has a little bit earlier. And yes, the Army has a significant purse. Uh, but compared to the national economy, it's not that big. Uh, we can nudge markets, but we can't really drive markets. But again, if we can combine with the Navy and the Air Force and the Department of Defense as a whole, that's that increases our buying power that much more. And then if we can work throughout the federal government as the president is doing to pull all the agencies together, again, that's takes it up even to the next level. So we've already, I've already had uh, conversations with my counterparts in both the Navy and the Air Force uh, and in OSD, the Secretary of Defense's office, uh, as far as the leadership on these issues. Uh, we are finding ways where we can cooperate, where we can magnify our buying power, uh, whether it's uh, through the technology research uh, for battery storage or tactical vehicles or buying power for the charging for our electrical vehicles. Um, however we can do it, we're gonna look across the board. We're gonna find ways to work together. Very good. And when we look abroad, are there opportunities or, or venues for the Army and other defense forces to, to collaborate with allies? Uh, I, I think there are. Uh, as you know, we have military and military partnerships uh, with all of our allies and even with, you know, with neutral nations. Um, we, we can look for opportunities uh, both in the training uh, and the doctrine writing, working with them, with the acquisition. Um, certainly, you know, we certainly sell a lot of our systems to our NATO allies. Um, so as we work with industry here in the U.S. to develop these new technologies, to develop the hybridized tactical vehicles and eventually the fully electric tactical vehicles, although that's a couple decades down the road, these are the things we develop, then we can turn around and sell them to our allies. Uh, so again, it's a win-win. It's good for us. It's good for our allies. It makes them more capable as well. And it's good for the U.S. economy as, you know, it increases our business. Um, and it's just like everything else with the climate problem. Yeah, we're not the only polluter in the world, but if we develop and manufacture the solutions, we can sell them. Absolutely, and that's a win-win. Coordination across states and communities is also important. Allison, you've talked about that a little bit, but I guess we haven't really talked that much about interdependence or interdependent systems like electricity and gas or electricity and telecommunications. Um, this is a really important and challenging part of discussions about resilience. Are there good examples of coordination across different sectors and jurisdictions? And if not, what is needed to facilitate better coordination of that kind? Yeah, so interdependency is so interesting and so important and I think in a lot of ways so challenging. So electric power depends on gas for obvious reasons. Gas depends on electric power for pipes and a whole host of things and the failure of one system leads to can lead to catastrophic failures in the other and it makes it really hard to get these systems back up and running. We saw hundreds of examples of it, but really recently in Texas in the in the winter storms also leading to massive water failures and people without water for for days and and weeks at a time. So, are there examples? So, 
I think I've heard, yes, anecdotal evidence, right? But very much at a grassroots level of people knowing each other and calling each other up. There are examples, certainly, of prioritization. So we know if some utilities, when they're planning, they're doing their restoration planning, there are certain aspects that are prioritized. Absolutely. Water pumps, pumping stations are certainly going to be prioritized. Hospitals are going to be prioritized. You get water back up, especially for pumping and in flood prone areas, you can start to evacuate the water more quickly. So that that is absolutely um, important and is happening. But <laughs> there's always the but. There's always the but. When we look at, say, look restoration of electric power, they're mostly evaluated based on customer days, customer hours without power. That's how they're that's their metric for evaluation. There are other metrics, but like if your goal is to minimize, if that is your sole objective from a very simplistic point of view, doing things that help another sector do not necessarily directly help your own right. your own sector. And these are oftentimes for-profit private organizations that have their own decision making. You know, they're, they're a company that has their own goals, objectives, shareholders, is to minimize customer days without power or customer hours without power. And so as of right now, there are very few regulations that, even look at kind of any of these interdependencies. So we have an entire, we have a Department of Energy that looks at energy and we have public service utilities that look at, you know, creating regulations and rules for operating of utility, of electric utilities and and water utilities. But there's very little, I don't even know what what body has this authority to even look at it. I mean, certainly DHS within CISA has, has starting to really look at interdependencies and kind of as from a, especially from a security risk. But there's not even a body uh, in in a government that can start to look at these interdependencies and, and start to plan, okay, what is a good form of communication? At what level should it happen at? What? How much information needs to be shared? Who needs to share it? You can have information overflow and that's not helpful. So I, I think there's work at all levels of government and also in the private sector to figure out how can we better coordinate? And I think that, yes, there are certainly examples that, that is happening, but there's also market forces and other forces that prevent it from happening. And Morgan, if I can just jump in on that yeah. one, Th- that's actually a perfect example of the interdependencies that there is a role for the army and all the services to play in that. Um, for instance, when the power does go down, uh, because we're so focused on the resilience of our base and putting self-generation on, you know, if we have that self-generation and resilience for a week or two weeks, all of a sudden, we're not the critical customer for the power company. So they can focus on the hospitals and for those in need. Uh, so they can focus you know, their line trucks out in town rather than, oh, we've got to get the base back online. It's like, no, we've got a couple of days here. We, we can do mm-hmm. it. And in turn, you know, because we have power, we can. there's other ways we can help. You know, we've got refrigeration that we can help the town with. We've got shelter we can help the, uh, the community with. So those interdependencies, you're right, there may not be an overarching thing, but if we can happen at the local community, that's a really good start for it. It sounds like a good start. And it also sounds like you're starting to move from this climate strategy that you've published to an implementation plan. What are the sort of early priorities and how could we know what's going on and the progress you're making? Uh, So 
we published the strategy back in the beginning of February and almost immediately turned to writing the implementation plan. So the strategy is the what we're going to do, the implementation plan is how we're gonna do it. And the implementation plan itself, it's actually basically focused just on the next five years. Mm -hmm. So while a lot of the goals in the strategy reach far out into the 2030s and even as far out as 2050, what we realize is, is that between now and 2030, it's gonna be a different world as you well know. Absolutely. Uh, the technology, uh, especially on the energy and the storage and all of that is gonna be light years ahead. So what we're really doing with the implementation plan is we're focusing on between now and the end of 2027. Very good, we look forward to that plan. Allison, we think more broadly about climate and resilience challenges. Can you leave us with a sense of where we might expect the most progress in, in say five years among civilians, we might say, and, and where is there the greatest need for continued improvement? Yeah, so in the next five years or even right now, so one thing I'm, I am excited about is NFIP 2.0. So National Flood Insurance Program it has been changed to have rates that are more actuarially fair and representative of the risk. So I think that it will be interesting to see what the behavioral response is from communities and and from individuals and where people will decide to live. I don't think the effect will be on the very short term, but I could see over a longer period of time, if your insurance rates increase, what will happen? I do have some concerns over the affordability and what that will do from a justice point of view. But from a purely a risk point of view, I'm optimistic about, about that. What I see as the greatest need, I think, actually is at the federal level of how to direct resources. So right now, we really focus on these really acute disasters. And we don't really have policy for long-term chronic threats, like a, a hurricane. We have disaster response for it. We have a, a system in place to really address recovery, not really long-term planning and hazard reduction or, or threat reduction from, from hurricanes, but there is that really, but there's not long-term planning for climate change and sea level rise and the 12 million Americans who will be who will lose their home because of sea level rise. But there's not even discussion over what we need to do over time to address this fact that there, some places are going to be too hot to live. Some places are going to be too wet to live. And, and we really need to look at that really critically. It sounds like it. Well, I hope that the Armony strategy can provide some inspiration. We look forward to seeing that progress. And um, Allison will keep an eye on states and communities and, and hope they can pull it together. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to Paul, Allison, and Morgan for that important discussion. I want to let you know in early October, CSIS will be hosting an event about the Army's latest climate strategy implementation plan. Be sure to look on our website for more details. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, follow us on Twitter for updates at CSIS Energy, and thanks for listening. 